Like many others, I have found myself recently engaging in a new pastime in this era of COVID. Some have been maybe learning how to make sourdough. Some have been gardening. My new pastime is the jigsaw puzzle. For the first time, really, that I can recall, I've been spending free time here and there in front of this table, sifting through pieces, creating pictures of Disney movies or maps or cats. It really doesn't matter. It was never a habit that really seemed particularly attractive to me, to be honest. But now that I, like all of you, have been stuck home for several weeks, I just keep finding myself drawn to this puzzle table. Well, it's not something I've consciously like pondered the meaning of until this week. I think I do understand why this habit appeals to me now in a way that it didn't before. It isn't just boredom. There's plenty of things I could choose to do at this time at home. Working a jigsaw puzzle is a project that makes order out of chaos. You open the box and you spill 300, 500, 1,000 pieces on the table. And it's not clear how any of them belong at first glance. It's not clear when you start that something discernible can be made from all this mess. But when you begin to sift through the pile of pieces, you, you discern the shapes and colors and patterns. You find edges. You see the light. You see the shadow. And you begin to bring this piece together with another and another and another. And then a picture emerges. There's order here. You just need to methodically put the pieces together until you find it. Of course, the reason you engage the process at all is you can trust that eventually the puzzle pieces will fit together. Right? You have the picture on the box. It will guide you. It shows you where this is all going. You're trusting that the puzzle maker didn't just sell you a box of like a thousand random pieces that in no way can come together. That would be such a cruel joke, right? No, you engage the process because you know that all of these disparate pieces somehow must belong together. And in the end, they'll make sense. Now, we're living through a moment right now that can feel really disordered. Even our best scientists, our smartest public policy experts, all of them don't have a clear picture of where we're going or what making order from chaos really means right now. It makes sense that jigsaw puzzles are having a moment right now, not just in my house. They are hard to find right now, right? In this cosmic chaos we're in, it's really helpful to have something we can order, something we can work on with the expectation that we will see progress. A clear picture will emerge from the mess. Well, since Easter, we've been engaging a teaching series we've been calling Resurrecting Hope. In this series, we've been considering together how this strange concept of resurrection that our tradition teaches, this bizarre idea of transformation and new life after loss, how that might actually have something particular to speak to us in a season of so much disorder, so much disruption, 
fear, and grief. We've looked at stories from those days and weeks after Jesus' resurrection, and we've considered how they might speak to us now. But today, as we finish this series, I want to argue that in order to really tap into the hope of what resurrection could bring in our time, we can't only look backwards. We also have to look in front of us. Because I believe resurrecting hope is informed by our past, it's available in our present, but it's ultimately centered in our future. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important and we have a, a slide for this. Hope is informed by our past, it's available in our present, but it's ultimately centered in our future, right? In the same way, you wouldn't start working on a puzzle if you didn't believe that these pieces were actually supposed to come together in some way. Hope in the present is connected to our sense of what could be possible in the future. So as we end the series today, I thought we should take a moment this morning to consider together what the future hope might be, how the past of our tradition might inform that, and how we can access in the present what most of us, when most of us could really use a good dose of hope, right? So that's the goal today. Now, the area of theology that deals with the future is called eschatology, okay? That refers to the study of the last things. Now, if you feel a bit squeamish just hearing the word eschatology, don't worry, you're not alone. Uh, so before we go forward, I'm just going to take a, a moment, like a little tangent moment, to give you my brief take on eschatology. Because many of us have had experiences, if we're honest, within Christian traditions that get real scary when they start talking about the end times. Okay? Often conversations around eschatology get caught up in what I personally would say are misunderstandings and confused interpretations of texts centering on concepts like heaven and hell and judgment day. And it's easy to get confused because we have to be honest. When we're talking eschatology, we are talking about the unknown. We would do well to stay humble and curious when we're speaking about what we sense is to come because none of us have seen the end of the time. However, we should even think about that. And the imagery that's used in the Bible when it comes to these realities is really hard to interpret. Now let's remember, the Bible isn't really a book as much as it's a library. A library that contains many different books and documents from, from a number of different genres. And one of the primary genres of literature in the Bible um, in which you find thinking on eschatology is called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic. Now when many of us hear the word apocalypse, we think catastrophe, we think calamity, we think earthquakes, plagues, empty city streets, everyone wearing masks, no toilet paper on the shelves, right? Yes, that kind of drama, end of the world stuff. And certainly there is imagery in apocalyptic literature that these impressions come from, but it might be helpful to remember 
that apocalypse doesn't actually mean catastrophe. The word apocalypse comes to us from the Greek, the Greek word apocalypsis, which, rather than being a word about destruction or violence, is actually about unveiling or revealing something. Unmasking is another word you could use. An apocalypse is a revelation. Something that is hidden being made more clear, what was in shadow coming to light. Now, what's challenging about interpreting apocalyptic literature is that the genre of literature is very symbolic. Often, a writer will be talking about what was for them a very present social or political reality in this mythic kind of language, and they'll use like dramatic imagery. To reveal what they understand is God's reaction, how God's heart is moved by the present injustice. I like to think apocalyptic literature isn't as much like a clear predictor of how everything will go in the future, as much as a creative, creative expression inspired by the Spirit, expressing what. Perhaps through these dramatic writings, the Spirit is helping communities imagine how, if God is ultimately the source of goodness and love, this love of God must ultimately manifest itself in regards to present realities, sorrows, injustices. In the end, things must be different than they are today. That is what we're talking about when we consider. Our tradition of eschatology. Okay, so with all that in mind, how might looking to the past inform what we could hope for from the future? Specifically, how might considering Jesus and his followers and their understanding of future hope, how might that inform our own? Well, first I want to point this one out. Jesus came to bring future hope into the present reality. Jesus came to bring future hope into the present reality. Perhaps the most clear hope for the end that Jewish people in Jesus's day had was for the deliverance that would come at the arrival of the Messiah, a word that meant God's anointed. The prophets and others imagined that the divine would send this deliverer, this anointed one, this new king, like King David had been before, to restore Israel. And in their understanding, that restoration would mean political independence. But the apocalyptic dreams of the prophets also saw this time where injustices would be defeated, liberation would take place as the Messiah came. The Messiah would usher in a just age, an age. It was a source of great hope in the midst of centuries of war, violence, oppression, loss. This is the tradition Jesus called upon when he formally began his ministry. You know how when a candidate will announce their 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 candidacy for president or for governor, they give a big speech, and it's supposed to say, "Here I am. I'm running, and this is what I'm going to do." 
Well, Jesus also had that kind of moment, that coming on the scene moment where he was telling folks, this is what I'm showing up for. This is what I'm about. And when he did that, he reaches for one of the most famous texts that speaks of a messianic hope. We see it when he goes to the synagogue in Luke 4. Let's pick that up at Luke 4.16. Now Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to tell them, today this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. Boom! That is a mic drop moment, okay? He says, today this has been fulfilled. Say, what? Yes, that would be the reaction of folks. He's saying, remember that promise that your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and like all of their great-grandparents, they have been telling you about some future reality? Guess what? That future is here. It is now. Jesus was talking eschatology. He was using their hope for the future to help them understand what he was here to do in the present. Now, there was a lot of confusion because, like I say, apocalyptic literature is hard to interpret. So lots of folks got the details wrong, and they think, oh, okay, well, if he's here to do this messianic stuff, then he's also going to mount an armed revolution against the Roman occupiers. But even though they misunderstood how Jesus was going to go about this liberating work, what he was claiming by quoting Isaiah 61, that spoke truth. Jesus had come to bring the future hope into the present reality. And in case the point doesn't sink in the first time, Jesus returns to this theme throughout his ministry. Just a few chapters later, Luke tells us of another incident where Jesus makes it very explicit. By now, he's been preaching, performing all these signs and wonders, and so John the Baptist sees the work of Jesus and sends one of his followers to find out if Jesus does actually understand himself to be this long-awaited Messiah. We pick it up in, in Luke 7. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And at that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and granted sight to many who were blind. So he answered them, go. Tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. The proof is in the pudding. Jesus isn't just claiming he's here to bring some future hope. He is demonstrating it. 
through the work he's doing. He calls that the work of a new kind of political reality. He reframes the social political language of the day that was steeped in monarchy and empire by calling it the Basileia Tau Theau, the kingdom of God. This is a different way of organizing that centers not on the concentration of power to threaten and oppress, but the release of an alternative power that can bring freedom and life. So every time Jesus touches someone who is deemed untouchable, every time he, he speaks truth that brings freedom, every time he brings radical, transformative possibility that can turn what had been suffering and loss into healing and life, he is showing that the future hope, that new kind of future kingdom that people have been dreaming of, that was active now. And nowhere is that more powerfully clear than in Jesus' resurrection. You see, those who held power in Jesus' present, they were threatened by this promise of a future hope amongst them. That new kingdom had to be defeated. So the religious authorities and the political authorities teamed up together to nail that leader and the kingdom he preached on a cross. But the present power did not win. The present power did not win. The liberating power from the future had the last word as Jesus rose from the grave. And in that moment, things got truly apocalyptic. You see, resurrection reveals something. Remember, that's what apocalypse means. Resurrection unmasks. It, and in resurrection, a new truth of reality is made clear. Resurrection is the ultimate declaration that the oppression of the empire cannot, in the end, win. Resurrection overturns the violent verdict of the scapegoating mob and says, no, this violence is unjustified and the victim will be vindicated. Resurrection testifies that life after loss can be more abundant and bountiful and enduring than what came before. The moment of resurrection is apocalyptic because it tells us something deeper about what's happening in our midst and what is to come. One of the most powerful experiences I've had in my life of resurrection took place in the wake of what felt like the death of a really powerful dream I had had to move to Berkeley, start an inclusive community of faith. In the long months after I was told by my former denomination that I would no longer be welcome to pastor with them, because I believed that the faith community I felt called to start in Berkeley needed to be fully LGBTQ inclusive. In those months, I felt deep grief and loss. It felt like the end. A path forward for us to move to a city we'd never lived in, where the cost of living was many times what it was in Iowa City where we were at the time, where we knew almost no one, 
where we had no institutional support. Frankly, it felt impossible. And yet, after years of dreaming and scheming and moving to Iowa to be trained and taking out loans for seminary, we also couldn't imagine not at least trying. So we decided we'd see if Jason could get work here, if we could find a way to pay somehow for a cross-country move with three kids, if we could sell our house in Iowa and find a place to live in Berkeley, and if somehow we could afford to squeak by, at least on paper in California, maybe we'd give it a shot. See if perhaps God still had something for us on the other side. But that felt like a lot of hurdles to clear. Each of them on their own felt like they could be insurmountable. So I think we figured if somehow they all were cleared, maybe that would mean something. Honestly, after a solid year of struggle, tension, conflict, rejection, loss, I was not prepared for what was about to happen. Our hope was to shoot for a summer move, maybe June, when the kids got out of school. So in January, Jason started the application process, looking for work in the Bay Area. A month later, competitive offers were on the table. The winning bid blew us away, as it included full relocation, not just some cash to help us pay for our own move, but full coverage for the whole process, from movers who would come and pack all our stuff and put it on a truck, to a realtor who'd come and help sell our house, to the airfare to fly us and all the kids to Berkeley. And then there was the house. This new company didn't want to wait till June for Jason to start, so he was relocated in March with a plan that I would come with the kids three months later. So in those three months of single parenting, three kids, eight and under, no joke, um, I also needed to finish seminary. I needed to finish my work at the church there. I needed to get us all ready to move. And by the way, I needed to sell our house. And understand, the Iowa City real estate market is not like the Bay. It's not unusual for a home sale there to take months. And they usually don't get full asking price. It is definitely, or at the time, was very much a buyer's market. And with everything else going on in that season, the thought of me keeping a house ready to show to potential buyers at any given moment God, that felt overwhelming, which is why it was stunning when our realtor called us within eight hours of our house being listed and told us that a full price offer was on the table. There was one showing and our house was sold. The buyers were even happy to let me and the kids stay in the house for the months we would need until it was time to go. So in June, we arrived in Berkeley and somehow we managed to pull all of that off, but still we had no contacts no sense of where we would start building community. I thought it would take years to get a small group going. And then I started getting the emails, an intro from a pastor in New York who, who knew me and wanted to introduce me to a family that was moving to the East Bay, a woman from Boston who just arrived, and she'd heard about me from her pastor there. This chick named Joanna, who was moving here from North Carolina, happened to go to church there with Jason's brother, Within a few months, this group of transplants was meeting in our home, and this Haven project had officially begun. Now some, yes, some people would call this all dumb luck, 
Some people would say we were just really, really fortunate. But honestly, for me, in the midst of so much heartache, so much searching, so much prayer, so much loss, and then so much discernment, asking the divine whether or not we should keep pursuing this dream in the wake of all this rejection and loss, all of these things falling into line in ways that just surpassed our expectations on every single front. That was resurrection. And just as it was for the early Jesus followers, resurrection for us was apocalyptic. It revealed something to us. The way things played out revealed God's divine commitment to this project. Even in the wake of rejection, it showed us that this future dream of an inclusive community to come to life here in Berkeley, California, that that was still active in the present. It confirmed for us that the same resurrecting power that brought Jesus up from the grave was bringing us to life too. And that brings me back to our tradition and our next insight from the past about resurrecting hope. Jesus' resurrection wasn't just a one-time event. It was the template for renewal to be released throughout creation. Jesus' resurrection was the template for renewal to be released throughout creation. So after Jesus' death and his resurrection, his followers had to think differently about this whole relationship between the future and the present. They recognized in some ways the future had come. Power for healing and change were here. The end times had started. But in other ways, the world was just as messed up as ever. The Romans were still in power. Babies were still going hungry. Jesus might have conquered the grave, but others died and didn't seem to come back. Theologians call this paradox of seeing future hope present and also not present at the same time an inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. It's like super long seminary words, sorry. Something has begun. It has been inaugurated but it's not yet finished. It is now, but it is also not yet. The divine kingdom is here. It is also still coming. To understand this new concept of a future hope that was here and still coming, the early church looked to resurrection. They began to sense that maybe what happened there was a template for a greater reality that was underway. Remember what we've been saying about resurrection in this series. Resurrection surprises. It unfolds over time. It transforms what has been lost into something renewed. It opens up new possibilities. All of this they saw in their midst. Perhaps Jesus' resurrection wasn't just an anomaly. Perhaps this was another way it was apocalyptic. Resurrection revealed what the divine wanted to do through all of creation. Paul spoke of this with the language of new creation. In Jesus, he saw God renewing what had been created in a very embodied way 
And he believed that maybe God desired that same embodied reality and renewal for everything the divine has made. He says it like this. So then if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. Peter spoke of a promise of Jesus to transform creation as well. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. And in the book of Revelation, John shares his own apocalyptic vision of where this whole thing is going. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist and the sea existed no more. Now I want to name, it's important to be aware that we miss an important nuance here in each of these passages because we're reading them in English. And the nuance we miss has to do with the word we translate as new. Many Christians read these texts and they believe they say that, well, God is going to wipe everything out in the end. God's just going to start all over. And if that's what you believe about the future, it impacts how you live today, right? If you believe this whole world is going to burn down anyway, climate change might not be a big deal. Maybe it's actually part of the plan. But that's a very, very narrow reading from these texts. And I think it misses the whole arc of Scripture as well as the nuance of what's being communicated here. Remember, when the New Testament talks about new creation, it is not talking about the story we saw in Genesis, right? Remember the point of the Noah story. It resulted in a divine promise to never destroy creation again. So that's not on the table anymore. In ancient Greek, there were two words that we can translate into new in English. And this is where we miss the nuance. So I'm going to pull it out a bit. One of those words was neo. It was used to denote something that was new in time. It's a chronological word. It means it's young. Something as neo only once at the very beginning of its existence. But there was a second word that, that was used in ancient Greek that we also translate as new and that is kahinas. And that was used to communicate something that has nothing to do with time. It's a qualitative word. We're talking about something that is qualitatively new. It's of a new nature, a new substance. It's fresh. Each of our passages that I just read you uses that word, kahinas, to speak of a new creation. No, it's not a creation that's new in time. We're not starting over. This is a creation that is renewed. It has been refreshed. It has been transformed. It has been made qualitatively different. This is resurrection language. In all of these passages and so many more, these early Jesus followers were saying, you know what? Resurrection isn't just for Jesus. This same thing that started with him is happening in all of creation. All of it. Everyone. Everything. We're all in the process of being made new. And this resurrection will continue to unfold until that work is done. This is the ultimate future hope our tradition points us to. The renewing of all things. So I'm going to read that passage in Revelation again. 
and go on just a bit more because I believe it's intended to give us this imaginative picture of the kind of thing we're looking towards for a source of encouragement and hope. So I just encourage you to receive it as such as I read this. John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. God will live among them and they will be God's people. And God's own self will be with them and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. And the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. Berkeley, I am making you new. Oakland, I am making you new. Marin, San Francisco, Peninsula, South Bay, East Bay, United States, global community, universe. I am making you new. I will dwell with you. And there will be no more masks on our faces. There will be no more fear of embracing one another. There will be no more loneliness, no more social distancing. There will be no more COVID-19, amen. Jesus' resurrection was the template for renewal to be released through all creation. And that brings me to my third and final point. Our hope for a renewed future gives us the power to endure the present and partner with the Spirit in this work of resurrection. Our hope for a renewed future gives us the power to endure the present and partner with the Spirit in this work of resurrection. Let's be real, it is hard to live in the tension of an inaugurated eschatology. The now and the not yet nature of this whole thing is so messy. It means that at times we feel that now, right? We can, uh, we're encouraged, we pray, and sometimes we see like miraculous things happen. Sometimes we have moments of a resurrecting spirit breaking through in ways that encourage us and rekindle our hope that God is ultimately here and on the move. The kingdom feels available now. At other times, like maybe today in the era of COVID, the kingdom is not yet feels a lot more real, a lot more present. Sickness is among us. Our friends are lost. Death is close and real. In these times, we need a fresh vision for a renewed future that can help us not only endure the present, but participate in the unfolding work of resurrection that we long for. The last nearly six years since Jason and I moved to Berkeley, it's had its shares of ups and downs, friends. It hasn't all been like butterflies and rainbows just because we knew we were participating in resurrection. There have been moments of glory. There have been moments of real heartbreak. But having a vision before me 
of what I've sensed God has called me to co-create with all of you, as well as having these occasional apocalyptic experiences of seeing resurrection in our midst, time and time again, that has renewed me and given me the courage to stay in the project, to keep putting those puzzle pieces together, to believe something beautiful is in the process of being revealed in our midst. So I just want to end with a story that spoke to me recently about the power of a future hope in the present. A couple of weeks ago, a group of us in Haven gathered on Zoom for a virtual conversation around the recent Netflix documentary, Crip Camp. Crip Camp's a powerful film. If you haven't watched it, I, I definitely recommend it. The film begins with the story of Camp Jeanette, a summer camp that was run in the Catskills of New York in the early 1970s. And the camp was in many ways like you'd imagine Many camps in the hippie era were a kind of Woodstock experience, complete with folk music and activist values and the experimentation of the era, but also with a unique twist. At this camp, all the campers and many of the counselors had disabilities. For the first time, many of these disabled youth had an experience of coming together and being in a space in which their disabilities did not isolate them or keep them from participating in community. Instead, living with a disability unified them with others who could relate to their challenges of navigating an ableist world, others who could accommodate their needs. And that new experience was life-changing. The kids who spent their summers at Jeanette in the 70s left transformed. They'd encountered a different way of being in the world and they couldn't simply just go back and accept the way things were in every other sphere. They had tasted what freedom felt like, and now they had an imagination for it in other areas of their lives. So the film doesn't stop with the camp. The film documents how many of those kids became leaders in the disability justice movement in the decades that followed. As young adults, a number of them moved here to Berkeley, where they lived further into their hope for a different way of being in the world. And this vision compelled them into decades of activism that have impacted our whole culture as they fought to bring about the reality they had seen at Camp Jeanette in other spheres. This group of camp alumni organized. They put their bodies on the line to bring about legislation that would protect them and include them in public life, like Section 504 and the American Disabilities Act. The work is no doubt still ongoing. But it has come thus far, and it continues today in no small part, because 50 years ago, a group of disabled hippie teenagers had an experience that gave them an imagination for a better future. They had a vision of a renewed creation. And that vision gave them a reason to hope. And that hope called them to be a part of the movement towards equity and justice that I believe the Spirit is always working to unfold in our midst. So as we end, 
I want to take a moment to ask you, where is your hope centered? What are you looking towards? What might the divine be revealing to you, to all of us, in this present moment about what is being resurrected in our midst? I believe we're living in a season of apocalypse, but not in the way many suppose. May we have eyes to see what the divine is revealing, what the divine wants to transform and renew among us. May we have hope that testifies that it is worth holding on to in the face even of grief and calamity. And may we have courage, like so many of those who've come before us, to partner with the Spirit and play our part in resurrection. Amen.